you would take your Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Once again, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I said last week that really this, this uh, is a continuous thought from chapter 1. It really goes all the way to chapter 7 and verse 1. I believe the, I believe the uh, paragraph really concludes with chapter 7, verse 1. I could be wrong about that. You know, there are a few things in life I'm wrong about. But <clears throat> anyway, that's my opinion, whatever that's worth. You know, everybody has an opinion. Some just, they're sort of like, you know, some other things aren't worth much. Anyway, I'm going to start this morning at verse 11. I'm going to read down through chapter 7 and verse 1 <clears throat> of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. You are not straightened in us, you are straightened in your own vials. Now for recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, what communion hath light with darkness, what concord hath Christ with Belial, what part hath he that believeth in an infidel, what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So it's kind of a continuation of last week's message, uh, and this morning we'll title Approving Ourselves in Our Associations, in Our Associations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity and privilege we have to open your precious word. Thank you that you have preserved it for us, that we can each have a copy of the word of God uh, that we can have and read and study and to, to, that we might show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Father, we pray as we look into this this morning, I pray you should help me as I preach to be able to explain and, and give understanding to those that hear uh, for your glory and for your honor, and for the furtherance of the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Probably Second Corinthians, this, this portion of scripture is probably one of the most repudiated in the Bible. Um, I've read commentaries of men, of pastors of foregone years, that one time would preach this as it is, but because of pressure from liberal associations, they would change their stance. This subject, of course, is what we call separation. Separation. And separation is really summed up in verse 1 of chapter 7, where it says, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Separation is about holiness. Uh, it's not about, you know, having some, uh, necessarily some, as we heard in Sunday school class this morning, some rigid standards by which we live. I know people that have some very rigid standards by which they live and govern their lives that are not separated unto God. You know, Saul made some very rigid religious standards in his battles with the Philistines. All it did was compromise their ability to fight. Because his heart wasn't in it. There wasn't a heart for God. It was all about him and his appearance. And holiness and separation is not about us. It's about the image of God that we present. It's about God's glory. It's about God's holiness. God's person. It's not about us. And, you know, the ministry is not about us. You know, in chapter 6, as we start out, we, we, the, the first verse there says, We then as workers together with Him. 
You see, we are workers together with Him. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9, that we are God's husband. We are laborers together with God. We are God's husbandry. We are like a cultivated field that God cultivates that's to bring forth fruit unto His glory. And so this separation, as we, we talked about approving ourselves as workers together with God, has to do with, with we, we talked about you know, proving ourselves in our, in our actions, verses 4 through 5 of chapter 6. We talked about approving ourselves in our attributes, verses 6 through 7. It has to do with our, our characteristics, the qualities that define us. And then we talked about approving ourselves in our attitudes, honoring God with our spirit, our attitudes of life, how we look at life, how we react, how we respond. All these things are to be approved by God. And, and so, this morning we want to look at approving ourselves then in our associations. Our associations. And we want to define several words as they get started here this morning. Uh, that that, that uh, uh, some are confused about. In verse 11, he uses the word straightened. And the word straightened means to compress or to cramp or to reduce to straights. The idea is to put into a narrow place. And Paul said to them, Our mouth is open to you, our heart is enlarged. You are not straightened in us. You are straightened in your own bowels. Now the word bowels means your own affections, your own feelings, your own emotions. So when you follow your own affections and your own emotions, instead of, the Word of God, you are hindering your relationship and you're working together with God. That's what he means here. You, you, you Corinthians think that you need to join up and compromise the truth of the Word of God so that you can win these Corinthians and, 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 and get influence, places of influence. But he says what you're doing is you're hindering your walk with God, you're hindering your, your relationship with God, and you're hindering the glory of God being manifested through you. You're corrupting the image of holiness before a lost and dying world. You see, this is what man wants. Man wants a God on their level. They don't want a God whose standard they can't meet. Because that's humbling. They want a God that's, you know, on their level. They don't like a God that says, that's wrong. That's discriminatory. You know God is discriminatory? He's very discriminatory. He's discrim- he doesn't discriminate by race, by gender, by class, whether you're rich or poor. He doesn't discriminate on those things that men do, but he discriminates between what is right and what is wrong. What is what transgresses his nature, his law. That's how he discriminates. And his discrimination is the same for everyone. But see, we want a God that's non-discriminatory. That's what we want. That's what our feelings want. And that's what people, they and, and so people pressure us to bow to their wants and they appeal to our emotions to our bowels, to our feelings. And he says, don't, don't hinder your working together with God by giving in to your feelings, your affections for people. But you, When you follow your own affections, your own emotions, instead of the word of God, what you're doing is crush, crowding Christ out of your life. Really, that's what you're doing. You're putting people in the place of God. The other word here that we see is enlarged, and he uses it twice in verse 11. Oh, you Corinthians, our mouth is open, your heart is enlarged. Verse 13, now for recompense in the same I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. And the word enlarged means to make broad, to welcome and embrace in love. And the idea here is, to open your heart, God is telling, uh, the Lord is telling through the Apostle Paul of the Corinthians, look, 
Open your heart and embrace the instruction, the truth. Embrace God. Embrace God's Word. Enlarge yourself. Open your heart to that. Notice in verses 7 to 18, this is the principle here that's taught. Wherefore, come out from among you and be ye separate. You know, so separate from that things with evil, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So enlarge yourself, welcome the, the, the truth of God's love, open your heart to Him that you may, may draw near and close into a close relationship with Him. Because if you're going to work together with God, you have to be in agreement with Him. And this is what this passage is about. Verse 14. And I want to define another word here. And that is fellowship. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Lyle? What part hath he that believeth with infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? Fellowship. The word fellowship means a participation, a sharing. And he says here that not to be yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship? So what participation or what sharing can righteousness have with unrighteousness? And we're going to define these things and, and so on and so forth. But fellowship, I want you to think about that word fellowship. A participation or a sharing. Go to Philippians chapter 1, verse 5, and I'm going to try and illustrate what fellowship really is. Biblical fellowship is. Uh, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul writes to the church at Philippi, and he says uh, that he is thankful. Verse 3 says, I am thank God upon every remembrance of you. Then verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, what is that fellowship? Well, look at chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. Now, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica you sent once again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may account, may abound to your account. So, see, the idea here of fellowship here is a participating together or sharing together uh, or yoking together for a common cause, and the church at Philippi yoked together with Paul. They were in fellowship with Paul, and they partnered with Paul. They shared with Paul in his ministry by giving. That's fellowship. You know, we fellowship together with other churches and, and, and sending missionaries to other parts of the world, the places that we can't go, as God has commanded us. And the, and the churches here at Philippi and the Macedonian churches, there was others, that fellowship together with Paul, in other words, they yoked together with, with Paul because they were of like faith in giving so that Paul could take the gospel to places they would not be able to go. That's a participation together. And it was a, it was a working together with God. That's the important part we need to keep in mind. We're not just working together with The Joneses in Russia were working together with God. Joneses are just the people through whom God is taking the message to Russia. You know, this is not about business dealings. Buying and selling has nothing to do with that. This is about fellowshipping together, yoking together. For a common cause, you might say. And so, he says, he tells them to be enlarged, not to be straightened by their own affections. And then he gives them some things, some guidelines by which they are to govern this separation. Or what they ought to guard themselves against. Verse 14, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship? Hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ Belial? What hath part that he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be mighty people. 
Now, all these things are descriptive of being yoked together. I talked about fellowship, uh, you know, communion, concord. These things are, are, and what part, you know, he continues says what part, or what assigned part, or what portion are descriptive of being yoked together. Now, to be able to yoke together, there's some things that have to be, have to be, uh, uh, evident. Three things I thought of. You know, think, think about this, okay? A yoke, two, two yokes, we're not talking about a single yoke. If you're yoked together, that means more than one. Now, growing up in Pennsylvania around the Amish, I've seen this quite often. So you have two horses, or maybe four, in a yoke, yoked together. Or, you know, I knew one farmer that had four mules yoked together. And he was out hiring his field with those, that team of mules. Now, one of the things I always noticed was that those animals that were yoked together, they must be the same thing. I have never seen a horse and an ox yoked together. It doesn't happen. They don't pull the same. You can't put a horse and an ox together. They have to be the same thing. You know, I've seen, you know, I have seen ox with ox. Uh, mule with mules, horses with horses. So they have to be the same thing. Second thing they must be, they must be close in size. I've never seen, in all my experience of watching the Amish farm, and again, I grew up around them, I've never seen a horse and a pony yoked together. Because what do you think is going to happen when you put a, a horse, you know, a full-size horse and a pony and a yoke together? They're gonna, they don't pull the same. They're not the same size. They don't have the same weight. No, they have to be close in size. And there's a third thing, and this is, this is most important. They must pull in the same direction. You know, you could. You know, you have a horse pull up in this side and a horse pull up in this side. The yoke looks the same on both sides. But how do you think that's going to work? It's not going to work. No, they have to be pulling the same direction. Now, I want you to think about that. And he gives us here five contrasts in this passage. There's righteousness versus unrighteousness. Uh, righteousness speaks of a purity of life, uprightness, correctness in thinking, feeling and acting. This is not just a code that we ought to live by or rituals. This is a heart to do what's right. A heart to obey God. In Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Matthew 5, 10, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Matthew 5, 20, For say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of God. See, the Pharisees has this, the Pharisees had this appearance of righteousness, but it was just like Saul, a rigid code of conduct, like the letter of the law, and, but they weren't righteous inwardly. They had no heart for it. They didn't have a heart to please God. It was all about them. And it was cold, and hard, and uncaring. See, righteousness is a heart that desires and seeks the mind of God in His Word for instruction how to live and conduct ourselves in this world. You know, 1 John 3, 7, the Bible says, Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. In fact, John the Baptist told the Pharisees to bring forth fruits, therefore meet for repentance. And so... You know, righteousness versus unrighteousness. You know, unrighteousness, of course, would be you know, the opposite of upright living and correct thinking. Again, these two things are going to pull in opposite directions. He said, what concord hath light with darkness? Uh, what communion hath light with darkness? Now, in other words, what, 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 what do they have in common? You know, the light, the word light here denotes truth in its knowledge. It, it is, it has, and it becomes the source of wisdom. Uh, it refers to the truth embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You know, John 1, 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light or the wisdom of man. See, Jesus Christ is the Word, and He is the light. He is the source of all of true wisdom. And of course, in God, God is all light. In Him is no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in light as He is in light, we have fellowship one another. There's that word fellowship. We're yoking together, participating together. If we walk in light as He is in light, we have fellowship one another in the blood of Jesus Christ. His Son cleanseth us from all sin. Romans 1.21 says, because that when they knew God, they knew God. It's not a matter of not knowing that there's a God. It says they glorified Him not as God. That's a choice of the heart. Well, they knew God, but they were not going to surrender their heart to God. They knew God. They glorified Him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. See, light and darkness, again, are polar opposites. Verse 15, what concord hath Christ with Belial? Again, these are direct opposites. They are in opposition one to another. The word Belial is another name really for Satan. It refers to wickedness. And these are at war with each other over the souls of men and women. You know, God created man with a spirit and the ability and need to worship God. Satan, who is a created being, Lucifer, he was a created being, tried to usurp the place and authority of God by lying in the sea. He said, yea, hath God said. Then he said, ye shall not surely die. He contradicted God's word. And of course, man yielded and fell into sin. And that started this war that rages from, from then till now of against God. You know, this wickedness we see happening in our country and in our world is a war against God. That's what it is. Marxism is a war against God. Let's, let's, you know, uh, what is it? Karl Marx said that religion is the opium of the people. Let's put him out of public life. We don't want prayer and Bible reading in the school. And so they've rejected the light and wisdom of the law of God. And now we can determine when life begins and, 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 and who has the right to take it or give it. You know, Jesus very clearly said in John 14, 30, Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. And we know Ephesians 2, 2 says, Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. See, the energy, that, that's what word worketh there is, is really the word energy in the English language. The energy of, of, of the wickedness in this world is from the prince of the power of the air, the old devil himself. See, these are poor opposites. They can't pull together. They can't be yoked together. What, what, what agreement uh, goes on here in verse 15? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? The word infidel again refers to an unbeliever. This, this word uh, means of those among the Christians themselves who reject the true faith, they are faithless or unfaithful. So it could be referred to somebody that's unfaithful. You know, as children of God, we're no longer to live to the lust of flesh. Second Corinthians five seventeen says, "If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away; behold, all things have become new." We have a new sphere of life. We've been saved. We've been given. We've been given the life of God. We've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son, and we're no longer to live to the lust of the flesh. Ephesians 1, 4 tells us that He has chosen us in Him that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. See, we've been, we should live holy since we've been made righteous or holy in the sight of God.
Colossians 1.12 says, Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who delivered us from the power of darkness, hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. You know, it's been very puzzling to me. Over the years, you hear somebody leaving a sound independent Baptist church and going to a contemporary church. That's puzzling. With all its bands, the darkness, the hip-hop music, something's drastically wrong with spiritual discernment. And their state. Often they go to these places because they don't like the answers they get from the church they're members of. They look somewhere else. Where is the obedience to the Word of God? Where's the yielding to the Spirit? Well, I prayed about it. You don't find the will of God by praying about it. I mean, if you find the will of God by praying about it, Pharisees would have been very righteous. They fasted twice a week. You know the will of God by the Word of God through the preaching of the man of God. And we are commanded here to separate from, not join with, or fellowship with, yoke together with, in the spiritual devil, with those that are unbelievers, that is, that are unsaved or unfaithful to the word of God. We're commanded to separate. He gives a a fifth contrast. Verse 16, What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Think about the temple of God. The temple of God refers to the place of God's presence. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2, 21 and 22, that the temple of God is the church. He says, In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So the temple, or the habitation of God, is the church. Now, let me ask you something. How would God God respond if we brought in and set on the the communion table here uh, tonight, set us a nice, big, fat, naked statue of Buddha? What would you think? You think God would smile at that? How about a statue of Mary? Well, you know, a lot of people say, a lot of people would say, well, that's not so bad. Really? Really? That's just as offensive as a statue of Buddha. That's just as big an idol as a statue of Buddha. How about we bring in the world's music? That's an idol in a lot of churches today. It's an idol. That's just as big an idol as the Statue of Buddha. You know what I often hear? Heard this, I don't know how many times, from these kind of churches that have this music. They call it music. I call it noise. Oh, the music was just wonderful. What about the Word of God? See, the Word of God is not important there. The music is. The Word of God doesn't draw the people. The music does. The carnal atmosphere, carnival atmosphere in churches, that's what draws people today. You know, there used to be a clear distinction between a carnival and a church. And now you can't tell some churches from a carnival. They have an entertainment appeal of a carnival or a hip-hop rock concert. Why? To draw and attract unsaved, carnal people. See, they've adopted the philosophy of the world in entertainment with a focus on building relationships with people. They use words like relational and missional. It's not missions, it's not relationships, it's relational. It's the words, the buzzwords they use. It has to do, their focus is on this kind of relationship, not this. 
See, the purpose of church is not to build these kind of relationships. That will happen. But the purpose of, the, of a church is to build relationship with God. We are ambassadors for God. We are in a ministry of reconciliation, reconciling men and women to God, not reconciling them to each other. If they get reconciled to God, the reconciliation between themselves will take care of themselves. Of itself. But see, our focus, focus of many has become on people and not God, which has created a shallowness in churches. It's just about emotional feelings. It's without depth or a solid foundation. See, truth is foundational. And a foundation of all relationships is a right relationship with God. See, a New Testament church is about the gospel of Jesus Christ and our relationship with God, living and serving Him. It's yoking together in a church with God to proclaim the gospel. Notice again, chapter 6, verse 1. We then as workers together with Him. He doesn't say anything about them yoking together with each other. He says you need to work, you need to yoke together, work together with Him. By the way, if you have a common person you're working together with, you're all going to be drawn to that same person. You see what happens then? You are drawn together because you're working together with Him. Focus isn't on each other first. It's on Him. This is very important. This is foundational. And what Paul is telling the Corinthians is, look, don't give into your affections and your feelings about other people. You keep me first and foremost. You yoke together with me. You let me govern your other relationships. You're yoking together with me, not with other people. And when you yoke together with me, you as a church will be united. You will be in unity. It will be automatic because you're yoking together with the same head, the same authority. You see, if we want to work together with God, we must not yoke with the world. Again, this is not about buying and selling or who you do business with or who you work for or who works for you. This is not about friends or family. In fact, we are not to yoke together or support friends or family in their unrighteousness and sin. To do so is to enable them in their cause. People say, well, it's my child. You're supporting unrighteousness. You're supporting darkness. You're supporting the cause of Belial. You're participating in infidelity. It's supporting idolatry. You know, the question that David asked, and I would ask you this morning, is there not a cause? And the cause is the glory of and holiness of God. The manifestation of His holiness. See, when we use worldly methods and philosophy, we tarnish the image of the holiness of God before a lost and dying world. You saw compromised in his fight against the Philistines. Because he compromised, he failed to trust God, and he weakened the nation of Israel. They never completely defeated the Philistines. See, when we compromise, we weaken our own testimony. See, we, 
the, the Lord wants us to stand. We need to say, I will not participate. I will not support their unrighteousness. I will not change the truth of God to accommodate your lifestyle. See, God commands separation from such things. Look at chapter 6, verse 17. Wherefore, come out from among them, be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my son and daughter, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The word separate means to mark off from others by boundaries, to limit, to exclude as disreputable. So you set boundaries about, about which you will participate in, or you will support. You, know, you have to set boundaries. You know, some things you have to leave. Maybe associations or fellowships with some people, again, working together to work with God. It, it'll affect where and how we educate ourselves. You know, one may go to work tech for, for a degree in nursing or business, but we don't, we shouldn't send our children to public school to be daily indoctrinated with the philosophy of the world. It's a system that's against God. You know, they're rewriting history. The world's not responsible to educate our children anyway. We are. The children are God gifts to parents, not state responsibility. Nor should we seek the wisdom of the world and religious concerns, how to raise a family, how to discipline children, how to provide for ourselves, how to conduct ourselves in business. The Bible gives us all these things. We need to seek His wisdom concerning these things. You know, thinking about business in Ephesians uh, 6, verses 5 through 9, the Bible clearly there gives some instruction concerning business and you know working for somebody. Ephesians six verses five through nine it says, "Servants be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men please, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall receive of the Lord, whether he be good, bond or free." And you masters do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is the respect of persons with him. So, you know, we're to, we're to serve our masters, we're to, to, to serve our employers with a good day's work, an honest day's work, and to do our work as unto the Lord. Do it right. Your fellowship our fellowship or participation or yoking together should be with the assembly, our church. We're to pull together in agreement. You know, really, this is the only way of knowing what you are supporting. You know, if you give the money to some churches or some organizations, it may go to pay salaries of people who do not even attend church. We had a lady who came to church here for a while. She was a secretary in the Southern Baptist Convention. Before she came here, she was a secretary in the Southern Baptist Convention. She didn't attend church anywhere. And she was drawing a salary from the Southern Baptist Convention. You know, if you were in the Southern Baptist Convention... Part of your offerings would go to pay the, pay the president's salary, which is estimated to be around $500,000 a year. Nobody knows for sure because it's kind of secret. But lots of high up people have talked about and given figures in the convention. Your governors, as a rule, make between $150,000 and $200,000 a year. But the president of the Southern Baptist Convention is around $500,000 a year. See, what's the problem? These conventions, these denominations, these religious systems are man-made. They're man-made. This religious hierarchy. And God says, I hate it. It's a doctrine of Lickin' Revelation 
which means rulers over the people. You know, some people say, well, I give, you know, I give money to church, and you know, I give money to this. Do you know what you're giving to? There's really no way of knowing. The Bible says, bring your tithes and your offerings into the storehouse. It's, it's, what it is is being yoked together. Yoked together with those you know are like faith. It's working together with God. You know, I have family that go to denominational churches. I don't ever go to church with them. They know I won't go to church with them. Why? Because I can't support something that's unrighteous. That sounds hard, but it's the truth. Many of these denominations support homosexuality. Even support BLM. This is getting closer to home. This is written by Big Big League Politics, Richard Moorhead, September 15th, 2020. Title is Southern Baptist Convention to rename itself in nod to Black Lives Matter movement. The article goes on to say, quote, The Southern Baptist Convention is set to rename itself, with the group's president citing the ongoing Black Lives Matter riot movement as an imperative for the change. The group no longer wants to be associated with the American South. And the president says, quote, Our Lord Jesus was not a white Southerner, but a brown-skinned Middle Eastern refugee. Unquote. I didn't know he was a refugee. Anyway, said J.D. Greer, told the Washington Post, quote, every week we gather to worship a Savior who died for the whole world. And that's part, that's true. Not part of it. What we call ourselves should make that clear, unquote. Greer cited the summer's, summer's national riot, race riots and unrest following the death of George Floyd in police custody. The resolution to adopt a new name passed following a vote of the church leaders, denominational leaders, Although it's unclear how they perceive the name as an insult to Black Lives Matter movement. That is a good question. The church will rename itself Great Commission Baptist. The new name is all well and good. Evokes the command of Jesus to be his disciples, to his disciples. But it's questionable that they are making the change for what seems to be expressly political purposes. Other imaginary imagery and reference to the southern, quote-unquote, nature of the denomination is expected to be removed from public view. The Southern Baptist Convention used to be a boogeyman for old school liberals. Now it's just another mainline church akin to the notoriously liberal Episcopal and Presbyterian churches. I couldn't support something like that. See, we need to know what we're supporting, what we're giving our money to. And who we're pulling together with. God's command is to yoke together with his church. With him. And separation, separation is drawing near or, or into a closer relationship with God. Notice verse 18. That's 17 and 18. Wherefore come out from among them, be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. See, it's really the process of putting off the old man and putting on the new, described for us in Ephesians 4, 22-24. And, and so it's, and here he's specifically addressing, you know, changing our associations, those whom we, we support or work together with. You know, Paul had to change his associations. When he got saved... You know, and you know what? All of a sudden, he wasn't part of the Pharisees anymore. He didn't support the Pharisees. He didn't support the Sanhedrin. He didn't even support the temple worship. Because that was not where God was dwelling anymore. He changed it. He no longer worked with them. In fact, he opposed them. And they opposed him.
Now this separation, or lack thereof, has serious consequences. In the Old Testament has given us a, an illustration of a lack of separation in the name of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, in Second Chronicles 18, he... Jehoshaphat was one of the good kings of Israel. Second uh, Chronicles 18, verse 1, says, Jehoshaphat had riches and honor and abundance and joined affinity with Ahab. Chapter 19 says, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, returned to his house in peace to Jerusalem. Jehu, the son of Hananiah, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Shouldst thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. Nevertheless, there are good things that found in thee, in that thou hast taken away the groves out of the land, and hast prepared thine heart to seek God. Here was a king who sought the heart of God, but he decides all of a sudden, hey, I'm going to make a league with Ahab. I'm going to join together, I'm going to yoke together with Ahab, and go up to Ramath Gilead to, to take back Ramath Gilead for Israel. Who was the wickedest king Israel had? It was Ahab with his wife Jezebel. And this righteous man had no business yoking together with Ahab. We did. But the prophet tells him, there's wrath upon thee for this thing. You should not help those that hate the Lord. Hey, let me be clear. Those that will not separate unto God, will not separate from evil, hate God. That's how he sees it. And what you find from here on out, next chapter, Judah is invaded by Moab. Now, they win that war, but war is costly. You go to chapter 20. Verse 35-37, Jehoshaphat dies and he makes his son, uh, no, he, at first he again joins, he wanted to join himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who was the son of Ahab, in a shipping adventure, and God destroyed the ships. God destroyed it. Chapter 21, he sets his son up, Jehoram, to be king in his place after he dies. And when he rises to power, who, by the way, guess where Jehoram gets his wife? The daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. How'd he meet her? His daddy joined together with Ahab in battle. So Jehoram, you know what he does? After he gets, takes the throne... He kills all his brothers. He kills them all. You know where he got that idea from? Ahab and Jezebel. His wife. Then, later on in the chapter, the Philistines and the Arabians come in and they carry off all his wives and all his sons. Except one. He's only left with one. In verse 18 and 19 of chapter 21, he's given an incurable disease until his bowels fall out. Where did he learn his wicked ways? By his daddy taking him north to Ahab and Jezebel. His wicked grandson is killed, who becomes the next king. Hazai is killed by Jehu when Jehu judges the house of Ahab. And so his mother, I want you to think about this. Know the depths of wickedness here. His mother seizes the throne in an attempt once for all to destroy God's covenant promises to David to keep her royal seat. And then she kills all the royal seed, even her own children and grandchildren. 
but a nurse hides one, Jehoaz, from her and keeps her from her mission. This is satanic. This is an attempt at Satan to thwart the promise of God made to David that he would always have a seed, a light in Jerusalem. You think about it. It would have, if, if she just succeeded in her mission, she just destroyed God's promise made to the children of Israel that Christ would be born of the line of David. This is all fruit of Jehoshaphat, who was a good king, I believe a saved man, joining affinity with Ahab. You compromise your faith, you yoke up with the world, you support by your presence or financially or marry into the world, or worldly churches, it'll come at great price. Exodus 20 verse 5 says, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, speaking of idols. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And interesting enough, what the Lord told Jehoshaphat was this, Second Chronicles 19.2, Jehu, the son of Hananiah, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and hate them? Love them that hate the Lord, therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. And it went unto the third and fourth generation. See, this separation issue is a serious issue. If you want God to be a father unto you, to have an intimate relationship with Him, to be able to work together with Him, we must separate from what we know to be evil, to be unrighteous, whether it's friend or foe. Or family. Now that doesn't mean we don't ever talk to them. But we treat them like the rest of the world. We wouldn't join together. We would support them in their causes. No, we yoke together for the cause of the gospel. We yoke together with God. That is our cause. And so, we have to approve ourselves in our associations. Proving ourselves in our associations. The question is, are you drawing closer to the Lord or are you pulling away? Are you separating yourself from the God? Or are you pulling away? 